0: Real is about is the humanity behind the fact that most people do not have depth, right? Most people do not know how to answer how are you with more depth than fine. And most family dinnertime conversations do not do not have more depth than how is work, fine. How's your boss, fine. And I fully believe that because of that lack of depth, we end up depressed, we end up anxious. We have the midlife crisis and the quarter life crisis. We don't know our identities, but The problem is not the depression or the anxiety. It's, God, we live so much of our lives sleepwalking, right? We're not present. And what am I doing, right? And I hope and trust that in 10 years, Real is going to build a world that has more of that depth and that presence such that we can answer the question, how are you, with more authenticity than fine.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Sliced Podcast, where we share startup stories from founders, investors, and CEOs from across the globe. Hi, and welcome back to The Sliced Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Ahrens. Today's guest is Ariella Safira, founder and CEO of Real. Real is a mental health platform on a mission to make mental health a priority. With both online and in-person sessions, Real is not only normalizing mental health care, they are celebrating it. Hi, Arielle. How are you?
0: Hello. I'm doing well. I'm so excited to chat.
1: Oh, yeah. It's going to be fun. We have a lot of fun things to chat about, so we can kind of just jump right in. To start, I have some notes here. So I'm curious. It looks like you studied. I just want to jump right to this because I'm curious. Looks like you studied mathematics and com- computational science. Is that how you say that? See, I can't yeah. even say it. That is, I, yes. <laughs> See, I, those two things mean nothing to me. I <laughs> like the hardest things in the world. What drew you to say that, and like, did you have a trajectory from
0: there? Wow, well, I've never gone ask this in an interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were very involved in math and science growing up. Uh, okay, and two immigrant parents who definitely lived by math and science forever. My older brother's a physicist. I went on to do math. And that's probably what drew me there. And so from a young age, uh, most of my time was spent doing math. And um, did I think I would continue it? I don't know. I I was never really someone who made a plan for the sake of what I might be in six years. I did things like doing it in the moment. And I Mm -hmm. really enjoyed my math classes. So I took them. And even as I, um, you know, became very interested in and involved in mental health care and redesigning mental health care while I was an undergrad. And I still chose to study math because I was most intellectually stimulated by math classes and challenged by math classes, though on the side I pursued, you know, innovating in mental health care. Okay, so it was an interest.
1: Yeah. And so then master's in clinical psychology from Columbia. So what initially drew you to mental health? It looks like Because then that's what you pursued later on.
0: Yeah, probably helpful to walk the journey from Stanford to Columbia. While I was an undergrad at Stanford, a friend of mine had attempted to take her life. And that was, you know, the start of my mental health care journey. It was the first time I'd ever seen a rehab. It was the first time I've ever heard of therapy and psych meds, you know, quite close to me. And I thought the system didn't make sense. You know, Mm -hmm. I thought it was wild that the first time my friend had ever met a mental health clinician was when she attempted to take her life right it was like wow this is strange that we've never engaged with mental health care until like a really traumatic experience Mm -hmm. and I thought the experience was dark I've always said like I left her rehab feeling depressed and I wasn't the patient right like how is this Mm -hmm. supposed to be a place that empowers her and makes her feel um prepared and safe to take on the world. So I I threw myself at the system then. And I, uh, I got in touch with David Kelly, who's a founder of IDEO. We hit it off and ended up spending a few years working together on how to redesign mental health care. I left Stanford. I thought I would drop out entirely to Found Real. Um, and after a year away, David convinced me that if I want to change healthcare without a medical degree, it's going to be tough. If I want to do it without a bachelor's, good luck. So I came back and I finished the Still in Math. And uh, that's actually when I got back to Stanford when I met who would become our chief medical officer, Dr. Nina Vassin, yeah. who's a professor of mine. Uh, I took her class called Innovations in Mental Healthcare. And she would eventually work at Real. Um, but yeah, finished up at Stanford and then went over to IDEO New York to work on how can we redesign mental health care. I went to Liverpool, England to work at what's considered the most innovative mental ward in the world. I biked across a few countries uh, to fundraise for suicide prevention. And then I went over to City Block, uh, the Google company designing a new primary care and behavioral health care system. And at that point, I thought, I've seen so many versions of mental health care and none of them work, right? I still look around and the people around me are not working on their mental health, right? Mm -hmm. My family's not working on it. My friends are not. This is not working. So I left to join Columbia's clinical psych program to train, to be a therapist. And while I was there, really being immersed in that system allowed me to better understand what does it mean to become a therapist? What does it take to be, Become a therapist. Um, who are the people who do? And what does that system look like? And um, then have the confidence and the certainty of I need to start this company. So I dropped out of Columbia successfully this time to found Real. <laughs> and that was now three years ago.
1: Amazing. And tell us what makes Real different from other platforms. I feel like recently we've seen quite a few, which is great, emerging. Yeah. But how is yours different?
0: Yeah, so a lot of companies are building marketplaces of therapists. So think of like right. therapists, and from a member or consumer perspective, what you're getting is sort of you know um, a scheduling system, a yellow pages for clinicians for you to have one-on-one therapy. Real is really not building on that. Instead, and, and the reason why we're not building on that is obviously we don't have enough therapists in this country for more than seven percent of the population to get access to care. So instead, what we're doing is building a new care model entirely, and building a model that is based on a few key goals. One is this needs to be scalable enough and affordable enough to reach every American. Two, this needs to be provably clinically effective. We need to be able to see clinical outcomes. And three is we need to reach people before crisis right? A huge issue in mental health care. There is no engagement until crisis. It takes an average of 11 years for someone to reach care when they are facing symptoms of mental illness. We need to meet people sooner in that process and to build a system, an experience they actually want to be a part of, right? They want to do regularly. And Mm -hmm. so what that looks like at Real today is we're building this monthly membership model where folks pay, you know, under $20 a month and have access to monthly mental health tracking and then a suite of on-demand mental health care products, tools and programs. So You know, a member's relationship with Real or experience with Real really looks similar to your experience with like an online fitness platform, right? With the Peloton or Obey Fitness of we're tracking your health and we're giving you access to care that you can engage with at 11 p.m., at 1 a.m., fairly anonymously, right? So an example of some of those on-demand products includes our pathways. Our pathways are these eight session therapy programs all delivered on demand. So we have a pathway for forming a better relationship with your body image. We have a pathway for getting to know your depression inside and out and what that pathway experience looks like. It's best explained in example form. Say you're in the forming a better relationship with your body image pathway. You receive session one. What session one looks like is our therapist, Maddie Lucas, walking you through, where does our perception of body image come from, right? And during that session, she's asking you to think through, think of the first time one of your parents or guardians or role models talked about their own body, right? And think of when was the first time you looked at a mirror and really questioned your own body, right? When did you stop and think like, is this body good enough? And, um, you know, going through that in a 45 minute session and it's delivered in an on-demand class, like an on-demand Peloton class Mm -hmm. might be delivered. And then you're given a reflection to journal on the past and a challenge to actively practice behavior change go forward. And right. what that enables, obviously, and I'm gonna shut up soon. Is yeah. um, you get to engage with pathways whenever works for you, and also, you know, because of the on-demand nature, your identity isn't shown to other mm-hmm. members, to a therapist, and what we're seeing that results in is people being willing to engage with care they otherwise are not comfortable engaging with, right? Yeah, you're tired of topics, your insecure topics.
1: That's so neat. I love how it's all you know, wrapped up into one, kind of like a workbook type module, seems like, situation, which is really unique. And it looks like you guys do member-only events and things like that. So you're engaging in that way as
0: well? Yeah. So it sits on top of all those on-demand experiences. There's also the opportunity to engage with our therapists live, um, Great. so in those event forms.
1: That's really neat. Did you ever think pivoting a little bit did you
0: ever think you'd become an entrepreneur I don't think I would have been surprised if you told me I'd become <laughs> an entrepreneur but I'm not someone who ever made it my goal to be entrepreneur my right. goal was to build a better mental health care system and if that requires me being the entrepreneur behind it I am willing but the net goal is not just to be an entrepreneur.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm curious what your experience has been like, especially as a female founder, going through the fundraising process.
0: Yeah, well, I've never been a male founder, so I'm not sure how it compares. But <laughs> yeah. um, I have been so fortunate to have met so many investors who champion real and understand the needs of real, and I, I think it's because real is a very smart idea, you know, not just in terms of how not just because our our country desperately needs better solutions to mental health care, but because we really are solving for the pain points that today's models don't, right? Mm-hmm. You know, our, we, we need to think more innovatively if we want to build a care system that reaches the entire country. And Real does that. And the first round of funding was probably a lot harder than the later ones. Um but I've been so fortunate that the past few rounds have been um, you know, I've been we've been preempted by investors. We have a lot of people eager for real and eager for real to grow more aggressively.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you think back to an obstacle that you had to overcome, maybe in the beginning or maybe not, um, as a founder?
0: Of course, <laughs> more I, uh, than one is good too. Yeah, wow. I mean. I founded Real when I was 24. And at that point, I basically had not had a full-time job for more than yeah, 10 months at really. any one place. And so certainly there was questions from investors, rightfully so, around um, can someone who is 24 years old build up a company whose you know financial model is showing it's going to grow in this way in the next few years? And
1: mm-hmm.
0: I... Had to overcome that by, I don't know, I've, I feel so fortunate. There's some luck at something being your first time that everything I saw as like an opportunity to prove more as opposed to a like, frustration for having to prove. So, you know, early on, Real's first round of funding was raised to build a brick and mortar location. It's what I'm sitting in today. And as you can imagine, there's even more risk there for an investor to put in that size, mm-hmm, th- that mm-hmm. enough money into something that, um, <clears throat> Returns as little as a brick and mortar experience returns, and you know very early on I got in touch with Anu Dugal who is the founder of Female Founders Fund. At that point I did not have a model, I did not have a deck. I just had certainty that I would build real and met with her, shared my story, shared what I think needs to come to life, and it really was a collaborative discussion. Um, where you know she had shared very thoughtful questions around like what do you think needs to get done in a year and. I felt comfortable when I didn't know an answer. Say like I'm not sure yet. I don't know, and she was very helpful in naming. Like I think for this to come to life, you're going to need, you know, an advisor early on who has built and scaled brick and mortar locations, right? Mm-hmm. So is it a. Um, <clears throat> to waste money, if you will, on like not having the experience to negotiate leases, et cetera. And so, you know, I quickly onboarded Taryn Laban as an advisor who was the former COO of SoulCycle before that COO of Casper. And so um, that's an example of how I sort of approached it from the jump from a place of curiosity of conversation, not of like one-sided speech mm-hmm. if you will and was so lucky that so early on I met folks like Anu who really engaged in that conversation as well and guided me through like all right this is the thing I'm gonna need to see and I t- I didn't take it as an insult I took it um thought it made sense yeah I haven't negotiated a $25,000 a month lease before so <laughs> um it, it really I feel fortunate in that sense. But for the most part, yeah, I was really young and um, raising my first round of funding, I think was two and a half million. So just a lot of capital to give someone who hasn't built a company before um, mm-hmm. and was really fortunate to have found the people who I did.
1: Yeah. And I think that can be key. Well, especially with your background being in math and then the clinical psychology, did you feel nervous you know, when you were first starting out, like with that business knowledge you're saying, like with all that capital needing to deploy that. And was that daunting to you? Just like the jargon alone and just the entire VC space?
0: No, but I I was also like, there's just, I really felt privileged to have gone to Stanford, right? That Mm -hmm. like by my freshman year of college, I knew what Sequoia was and Excel was, I knew Lightspeed, I knew Nicole Quinn. Like I um, feel there, there is definitely a dramatic privilege in going to a school in Silicon Valley who right. might as well have invented Silicon Valley. And just like the talks we had on campus meant that the language and just the concept of like starting a company, raising capital. You know, when I left college after my second year, I was like, you know, went through the Teal Fellowship process. So was well-versed in well-versed enough. I certainly have learned so much. Every day I'm learning a lot in the role, but I I, um, was much more familiar with the ecosystem because of um, undergrad. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you mentioned your physical physical office that you're sitting in. And I was actually just speaking to somebody about this the other day. But I think, especially with COVID, we've seen like a huge Lens, if you will, on like culture, company culture, right? They're calling it the Great Resignation, et cetera, et cetera. How important is office culture to you and to real? And can you kind of speak on what we're seeing change within that?
0: Yeah. So we basically launched in the pandemic, right? Like we mm-hmm. didn't when when the pandemic hit. We might have had I don't know ten full time employees if that, and so. I, again, feel pretty fortunate that we didn't have to evolve our ways of working from IRL to remote. Instead, we built from scratch remotely. And we also, most of our remote time, we were still a small enough company that it was a lot easier to build new ways, um, remain in touch, Um, and... You know, I think most people who work at Real, certainly myself, just very people forward individuals, people who are very Mm -hmm. communicative, people who are um, self-aware enough to identify if something was, if they didn't communicate something well enough, I didn't. And so I think that really promoted a culture of community, even in the remote world. And from the jump, you know, I, I, we've been very intentional and authentic about how do we give people healthy lives at real we're actually piloting a 4-day work week right now that last week was the first week we had done it we have a quarterly mental health break where the entire company shuts off for one week a quarter like really have been i think have been quite human That's and great. curious yeah. and intentional yeah about how do we make this work in general wasn't necessarily healthy before the pandemic but i do think it got a lot less healthy and i could say in the context of real like people work around the clock right. and I'm constantly wondering how do we build this system under the constraints of venture capital, also the benefits of venture capital, to be clear, um, mm-hmm. while also having health in our employees.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you built the company on the need to prioritize mental health. So I'm, how do you personally prioritize your mental health? And do you have any tips for our listeners? Huh. <laughs> um <laughs>
0: How do I? So transparently, and I don't know how fun of a response this is. I need to work from the office to have my mental yep. health. I think one of the a great lesson for me in the pandemic is do I, I love the flexibility to spend a week elsewhere if I want to to you know work from where I want a vacation, etc. But I really need the routine of getting up in the morning and leaving my house and working elsewhere mm-hmm. for me to feel boundaries between the two places and so interestingly enough for me to to maintain my own mental health I do need to separate work and play and I need to work from the office and play elsewhere and outside of that I mean I think I'm quite huh how else have I been healthy I have various practices that help me feel like more present I've chatted about before my like um death exercise or probably like once a month i um probably allocate like 30 minutes to i guess you can call it a meditation like really imagining someone i deeply love passing away and i really experience for myself the like what would it look like if my brother passed and imagining you know the new hearing the news the phone call imagining the funeral and As you can imagine, this ends up being a very intense experience and really, truly trying to sit with what if that was reality and what ends up happening, you know, at the end of that 30 minutes, however long experience is I come back to this world and realize like, wow, my brother is alive and I, End up filling with such joy and perspective and surprise of like, I'm so lucky to have him alive. And that exercise is something I've been doing since I was an undergrad, if not even earlier. Um, and it really enables me to constantly remember what matters most in life. It is so mm-hmm. hard for any of us, definitely as a founder to like remain grounded in, you know, our health is what matters most and the people around us is what matters most. It's just hard to remember. And Um, I don't necessarily, um, I wouldn't prescribe this to the world. I'm not sure how healthy it is for everyone to do, but for me personally, it ends up being a really valuable exercise to just remember how much the people around me matter to me and, um, reminds me to spend time with them more than I spend in front of the laptop.
1: Yeah. Love that. Well, what's one piece of advice that you wish you would have known when you Uh, were getting started in your founder journey?
0: Huh! Wow, this is a great question. What do I wish I would have known? Huh? I wish I documented better, both in terms of like timelines, like journaling. I was gonna say both in terms of like timelines, but also yeah. in terms of journaling and taking photos. Real has been a really great example of. Like Wow, time flies, and it—it's so hard to take stock, right? Mm-hmm. And just recognize where am I now versus where I was before. And given the speed at which Real has grown, and I have grown through that the process of Real, I really wish I had more um, documentation to see. And you know, we do at Real, we do an annual reflection video, so. Um, once a year on the day that we launched Real to the People, now about two years ago, um, we record like where we are today, where we think we're going to be in a year. And then at the one year mark, I like put together all the videos or um, our videographer puts together all those (laughs) videos into a video and uh, we watch it as a team. And that is a really beautiful exercise. And now we've done that twice now already, or two year was um, two weeks ago. And I just wish for myself I love doing that on a team-wide basis, and I think it's a mm-hmm. phenomenal mm-hmm. exercise to reflect as a company. But I, I wish I did that like, monthly with myself. I, why I need real? is like, journaling is so hard to keep up with, and having a tool that I can look back on and remember, like, you know, who was Ariella in March 2020? Who was Ariella mm-hmm. in March 2021? What didn't I know? What am I learning? I am. Um, Probably not like a business know-how or, you know, I don't know if Harvard Business School would write a case study about it. Maybe they would. But um, I, I think I would find a lot of value in in having more, you know, moments to reflect sure. on in some tangible form.
1: Yeah. Well, life does move fast. And, you know, which brings me to my next question, which is, you know, 10, 10 plus, let's say, years from now, where would you like to see real
0: in ten years, I want to see real scaled across the entire country. But more importantly, I want to see people feel more connected to themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, Lord knows what form or shape real will take. The real goal is: I want to know that people across the country have more self awareness, have more confidence, have more depth because of mm-hmm. the product we brought to life. You know, we I say this a lot, particularly to new employees that. We use clinical terms because that's what stakeholders need to understand what we're doing, right? Words like depression, anxiety, PHQ9, clinical efficacy. Like, it's real is not about the illness or the diagnosis or the reduction in PHQ9 score. Like, real is about this, like, the humanity behind the fact that most people do not have depth, right? Most people do not know how to answer, how are you, with more depth than fine. And most family dinner time conversations do not do not have more depth than how is work? Fine. How's your boss? Fine. And I fully believe that because of that lack of depth, we end up depressed. We end up anxious. We have the midlife crisis and the quarter life crisis. We don't know our identities, but the problem is not the depression or the anxiety. It's like, God, we live so much of our lives sleepwalking, right? We're not present. And like, what am I doing? Right? And I hope and trust that in 10 years, real is going to build a world that has more of that depth and that presence such that we can answer the question, how are you with more authenticity than fine.
1: Mm-hmm. I love that. I'd never really thought about that before, but yeah, you, 99% of the time you get fine <laughs> yes. from everybody. Yeah. So would you say that your future aspirations for yourself align with those of real, I guess, hand in hand?
0: Wow. When I'm asked, how are you? I have a long answer. <laughs> I don't know if I can get longer. <laughs> what are my aspirations? for I don't know. I really don't think past 10 days out. Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. When I think of future aspirations, it's more, what do we enable in other people? And mm-hmm. I will do the role I'm best equipped to do to bring that to life. Yeah. Well, is there, uh, the
1: majority of our listeners are also founders and entrepreneurs. So is there a piece of advice that you would give them?
0: Wow. Nothing matters more than your team. Okay. Both, like I, sometimes I put too much time into hiring, but I do think that that just, I'll often hear the um, advice to founders, like your first hire should be a recruiter because of how much time it takes. I would. I've never heard them. that actually. That's funny. <laughs> I've been told all the time, and it does take you know half my time. But I think the greatest, like, I have learned the most and built the best because of how many people I've met in recruiting and interviewing, and how deeply I've gotten to know what people from different backgrounds, what they excel at, what they don't excel at, and I think that investment in bringing on the right people and really growing those people. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm so proud of like the growth of some of run at real there's certain people like wow I'm so proud of how you've been able to grow here and it has benefits in the company as well of course um so I think investing in your people and obviously that goes both in terms of your employees and your board your investors that probably was a great lesson for me at real like how impactful it is to have our investors I'm lucky that we had them from the jump but I definitely get to hear stories from friends about how different that process looks like for them and yeah really recommend investing time to getting to know the people who will be a part of your company.
1: Yeah. We touched on this in the beginning in the intro, but we mentioned how you're not just air quotes, normalizing mental health care, but you're also celebrating it. Could you talk about that celebration piece?
0: Yeah. You know, I do think we still live in a time that we think we've normalized mental health and I'll constantly push back. We have not. It still is probably a minority of my friend group who practices mental health. It's mm-hmm. not a majority. Like It is more of a statement to be someone who goes to therapy than it is a statement to not go to therapy. And like, normal would mean you're the strange one if you don't go. Right. Um, celebrating it is like this should be a part of our dinnertime conversations, right? Understanding like what, you know, why is it that you feel traumatized? And similarly, why do you feel so wonderful? Like That needs to be what we talk about in workplaces. It needs to be what we talk about with friends. And it needs to be something we reward, right? And like, there's richness in understanding yourselves, yourself deeply. There's richness in being able to talk through like, what happened to you as a child? What happened to you last week? And what, how does it impact you today? And I celebrating mental health means having those conversations, um, and celebrating our peers for having those conversations, not just in, um, you know, random or one-time moments, but always.
1: hmm Yeah. And how do you ultimately measure success?
0: Hmm. Success to me, I guess scale of people who feel impacted by real Right. And mental health is a really tough one to measure. We have used all the clinical assessments and I feel confidently in the outcomes we're showing in those assessments, right? Your PHQ-9, your GAD-7. But I want to know that everyone in this country uses real and feels based on their own personal emotional measure. I want to know they feel impacted. I want to know they went through the friendships pathway and feel more connected to their friends. I want to know that they're, they're, they go through a sex pathway and they're better at communicating their needs during sex. And I want to know that based on a person's measure of growth and self-awareness, that real made them feel even more grown, even more self-aware.
1: Awesome. Well, I love what you're doing and thank you for doing the work that you are. Is there anything else you want to add either about yourself or about real? Anything at all? We covered quite a bit. I mean. Yeah. I know. We try. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, obviously, and I trust every founder on this shares it. Like, oh, it's not easy. The job yeah. is so hard and you're doing so much at once and learning so much at once. And having people in your corner, um, having close friends who do not represent people who have equity stake in your company is so important in making it through, right? And having yeah. people who love you who will not cash out on real is really
1: valuable. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure chatting with you. I love what you're doing. I will make sure I tell my friends about it. (laughs) And um, thank you so much. Just really appreciate your time today.
0: Of course. Thank you for having me. This was so wonderful.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Sliced podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of Sliced, please email newsroom at startupblogpost.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.